Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday november 30th 2007 this week episode 60 comes to you from studio b in coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff hey, Slotnick. good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Cliff. And we got the cyber jockey, CJ, Zach. I'm here, Joe. How are you? <laughs> All right, CJ. This week we've got the wingman with us, Chris Boisel. He's going to help us out a little bit. Good afternoon. All right. Welcome, and uh, nice to have you here helping out as the wingman. Okay, Check out the website at iaqradio.com when you get a chance. Today's segments are going to include the microband trivia quiz. We've got Dale Stewart from the Reaction Company. Uh, we're going to have a great interview with Dale. We've got the IE Connections, What's News with Glenn Fellman, and then we've got the Roundup. And it looks like I also want to uh, welcome back from vacation our technical director. Can we unmute uh, Dr. Dieter there and see if he's on the line? Uh, yes, we can. All right. But first. Oh. Yes, well, well, well. <laughs> I like I like that Beethoven stuff in C sharp minor. <laughs> I recognize it. <laughs> and well, yes, I'm back. Welcome back, and, Dieter. And I tell you one thing. It is still unbelievable. I'm ba- back now for a week from the far east on the other side of the world, 13 hours away, and I still have jet lag. <laughs> Please <laughs> that old, that old body just doesn't work like the, the new one anymore. Doesn't, doesn't work like it used to, huh, Dieter? Well, I'm but sure I'm back, yes. Our guest has done the same. He's traveled worldwide, and we'll be uh, looking forward to bringing you in from time to time to touch base with us. Absolutely. Thanks for coming back, Dieter. Pleasure. All right. Let's go back back to uh, our sponsors first. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dryease-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. All right. 
To contact the show, you simply go to the TalkShoe.com website, follow the directions, and our show ID is 1547. We also appreciate suggestions and questions. We'll answer questions, take requests, etc. at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com, or Cliff Zlotnick, Z-L-O-T-N-I-K, at unsmoke.com. You can also post questions at the iaqradio.com website. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, I believe we've got some intro music. Oh, no, we've got to turn it over to the Microband Trivia Quiz. We like to remind our listeners that they can fax in, mail in, phone in, or text in the correct answers to our trivia questions and win cool prizes. Sorry, no one got the question last week. Zach, the envelope, please. The Microband trivia question for Friday, November 30th, 2007, is about numbers. What is the significance of these numbers? 22693. 22693. Back to you, Joe. Okay, that's a good one, Cliff. That might be a tough one there. Huh? All right, our first guest today, let me get our uh, little introduction here, is Mr. Dale Stewart. He's known worldwide for his experience in identifying, reducing, and managing risk associated with disasters. A perfect fit for here on IAQ Radio. He has been there, done it, and survived to tell tales and teach lessons learned. He is the founder and managing partner of Reaction Company and leads a team of experts who teach their skills to men and women with a vested interest in public safety of our citizens. His presentations are full of energy, high content, and high impact. Clients and audiences appreciate his unique philosophy, common sense approach on difficult topics. He can be reached at Dale Stewart. Our D Stewart. Well, let's go with the DaleStewart.com website. That's an excellent website. We've got a lot of good information on there, and I believe we've got an intro clip. All right, Dale, are we? Do we have you on the line? Hello. Dale is here. All right, Dale. Welcome, welcome to IAQ Radio. It's great to have you here. I. We pulled the reaction company off your website. Is that still uh, what you go by, or do you have? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. I, I wasn't sure because I go to dalestewart.com when I look for stuff from you. Well, yeah, a lot of people know me by name and more so than the name of the company. So. Okay. Well, welcome. And uh, what we'd like to start with is, you know, you were were you j- just born with a cool head or an ability to work under stream pressure? Um, you know. When did you recognize you had these skills? And uh, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I, I don't know if I was born with it. I certainly developed a very early uh, uh, want to know about why people survived and why people did things and how people made decisions. Uh, and I, I think that probably came out of uh, growing up in, in Louisiana and hunting and fishing and in the outdoors all the time and uh, uh I've never been lost, but I've been real confused a few times. And, and during those <laughs> during those moments of confusion, I you know I, I started thinking about well, if I 
if I decide to do this, what's that going to do? And if I decide to do that, what's that going to do? So that kind of uh, very early on got me interested in that. And uh, so I started reading everything that I could uh, probably when I was 12 or 13 years old and starting to look at that and starting to uh, really learn and try to figure out uh, this world and, and how we make decisions that, that would help us uh, move through this uh, this life that we lead. Dale, in, in what ways does a human mind take in information about which they're going to make a decision? Well, it takes it in primarily through the senses, you know, uh, what they see, what they hear, even what they smell, certainly what they read, and, and then what they do through training uh, is really the best way that the mind takes in information. But it's primarily uh, uh, just the way we learn when we're very small, through what we see, feel, touch, smell, uh, and are told. Now, you you talk a lot about situational awareness. Is that uh, obviously the senses are a part of that situational awareness? Can you give us a little bit more about situational awareness? Sure. Well, situational aware, awareness, it, it simply is is really your ability to to uh, identify, process, and comprehend things that are going on around you. Um, uh, and and examples of that are you know when you walk out of a walk out of a store into a shopping mall or something, just looking around and seeing what's there and what's available to you uh, information wise. Situational awareness is a key to to a lot of things. Knowing what's going on around you at all times. What kind of things cause people to have less situational awareness? Is that a, uh, an accurate or a good way to state it? I guess, Dale. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, complacency. I mean, we, we live in a great country. This is primarily the United States. We live in, in a great country where, where, for the most part, we're safe. Uh, we don't worry about uh, being attacked or blown up or, or anything uh, too much. So, uh, you know, we, we tend to kind of become complacent and, and don't worry too much about what's going on around us. So I'm assuming a big part of your training on situational awareness is getting people to recognize the fact that we don't pay attention as much as we should maybe. Is that accurate? Absolutely, absolutely, and and getting them to think about uh, and and force themselves, if you will, to look around whenever they're where they're driving their car, whether they're in a, a an everyday situation. And it is certainly critical when you're dealing with a disaster or a crisis or, or a very changing uh, chaotic environment. Is there a difference between really good situational awareness and an obsession with it where, you know, you're paranoid that, you know, people are out to get me because they really are, you know? Well, you know, a little paranoia is not a bad thing. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. But, uh, no, I mean, there, there are certainly lines that you can cross over, uh, you know, where you become obsessed or paranoid about, you know, something's going to happen or, or some kind of, uh, harm may uh, may uh, get me, but uh, awareness is not really about that. It's just about knowing what's going on around you, good, bad, or indifferent. Now let's let's move on to critical thinking. Can you give us just a, a quick uh, one or two sentence definition of how you define critical thinking? Well, critical thinking is one of those tough things to define, but uh, it, it's really an examination uh, of of and a test of propositions of, of any kind of evidence that's being offered to you. Uh, in other words, uh, 
when things are said to you or when you see things or when you develop things, it's your ability to look at those and really decide whether they're they're real or they're not real or they have uh, a meaning to what's going on at that moment in your life. Okay. Um, what's the difference between an implication and the consequence? Well, an implication uh, is a likely consequence. It's a conclusion that's drawn from something. It's a suggestion. A consequence is actually the result of something that you do. It's a result of action. I see. And how does this play into something called critical questioning? Well, critical questioning is really at the heart and the key to critical thinking. Um, the quality of our ability to think uh, uh, is really based on the quality of the types of questions that we ask, either verbally or mentally. Uh, so critical questioning, asking asking the right questions at the right time uh, is is really what it's all about. You know, you, you raise basic issues. You, you kind of probe beneath the surface. Uh, uh, you look at... Uh, problematic areas. Uh, so it, it, it's really at the heart of, of, uh, of critical thinking. What is the OODA loop? O-O-O-D-A loop. The OODA loop. The OODA loop was... Acronym police. Acronym police. You have to tell us what the OODA loop is. Pull over, please. Okay, OODA, OODA was developed by uh, retired Colonel John Boyd, who was an Air Force colonel, uh, pretty much back during the Korean War. And the... And, OTA stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. Uh, it's not truly a loop. I've been studying it for 25 years and still don't understand it completely. Uh, but w- what it is is it, it's based on uh, decisions and situational awareness and doing those in a, in a quick, timely manner and doing them before an opponent does them. Uh, the loop was actually developed because we were losing uh, uh, fighter aircraft to inferior Russian MiGs and Chinese MiGs uh, uh, during the Korean War, even though we had superior training and everything else. And, and uh, Boyd began to look at this, and he developed this, this series in a dogfight that uh, you, you, at its very basic, you observe where you are uh, in the dogfight. You orient yourself to, uh, to what's going on around you and to the bad guys. You decide what you're going to do, and then you shoot the guy. Okay. Uh, and so it's it's a it's a quick process of of quickly analyzing the situation you find yourself in. Would this have other implications other than military? Oh, absolutely. I use it in in training uh, everything from law enforcement first responders uh, to uh, uh, to to business people. Uh, it it has a lot of of uh, implications uh, in a lot of different fields. I'm curious of the four: observe, orient, decide, and act. With business people, what do you find they're weakest on? Uh, orientation. Orientation. Uh, and that's yeah. And orientation is really uh, sort of true throughout any group. It's uh, it, it's pretty easy to observe what's going on. I mean, if you if you just kind of look around or, or you hear what's going on, orientation really gets into. Uh, uh, Looking at, at things in a lot of different approaches, you know, from from a social to uh, from a business standpoint, social, economic, cultural, all of those things come into to orientation. So it's it's a much more complex part of of the loop to understand. Is part of 
understanding how to to better orient yourself, trying to kind of get outside of yourself and look from the outside in, or well, I, you know, I teach people to stay in themselves. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. But you know, stay within yourself because as soon as you try to step out of it, you're 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 going to lose kind of kind of what you're looking like. But it's it's really understanding you know the external forces uh, that are going on around you, and those include all kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, but uh, but. The, the Oda Loop is really um, being able to recognize uh, patterns and, and what's going on and deal with them in a very timely uh, 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 situation. Okay. And that I guess that leads us to decision-making. Yeah. Now, what, uh, what can you tell us real briefly on how you handle helping people with learning about decision-making? Well, decision making is is at the heart of everything we do. I mean, we make decisions every day, uh, you know, based on uh, you know what's going on around us and what we're doing. In the world that I'm in and, and what I teach, there there are basically two types of decision making. One is a analytical type decision making, which is what is primarily used in the business world, and it's based on very rational, calculated, uh, scientific comparisons of of many options. And, and that, that model is used when you are not under time element. You really have time to, to test it, to get a lot of information, and, and to do some, some long-term planning. Uh, and it works well in that. Uh, it does, analytical decision-making, though, does not work well in a disaster situation or a chaotic situation. And, and, and for that, we move to something that I teach called intuitive decision-making. It's also known as recognitional decision-making naturalistic decision making and uh, and and it is really based on uh, experience and training and your ability to recognize something very quickly and decide what you're going to do very quickly and that goes back to the Oda loop uh, it's also uh, you're not trying to make a perfect decision you're just trying to make a good decision based on what's going on around you at that moment and and then move so what would the disadvantage of being an analytical decision maker in a crisis situation? What would be the negative implications of that? Well, again, analytical decision makers are always looking for more information. They're, they're always looking to, to, to get more input and, and get answers to more and more questions. And in a crisis or, or a disaster situation where you have a rapidly changing environment or can have a rapidly changing environment, you just don't have the luxury of gaining or getting all of that, uh, all of that information that you need. And, and so you tend to put off making a decision that, that uh, is very likely critical at a, at a, at a specific time in, in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. what, what kind of techniques do you use in your training to help people become better at these tactical decisions? I tell you, well, you, we use, yeah. I was going to jump in because I think what I'd like you to do is I think that Joe asked you a really great question, but I'd like you to answer two questions. All right. I'd, I'd like you to answer it from two different perspectives. Joe asked you, what would people do? And I mm -hmm. think what we need to do is tell you which people. So if, right. you, if you could ask, uh, if, if you can answer it, what would an emergency responder do? Like a fireman who's going in to, uh, to fight a fire, how might he go through this decision-making process? And then if you could answer it, how a building owner might 
make a decision in the event of a corporate crisis, such as some sort of disaster that befell their their building, you know, hurricane damage or or something like that. So could you answer it that way? Sure. Uh, a firefighter going into a situation to, uh, whether he's fighting a fire or a hazmat situation or whatever else, is going to fall back again on his training. He's going to fall back on experience. And the decisions that he makes uh, are going to be based on that, that experience and that training that he has had. And he's going to make those very quickly. I find in a lot of my classes, if I have senior-level firefighters uh, that have had a lot of experience everything, they come up with almost identical decisions almost every time. So, it, again, that, that decision-making, that intuitive decision-making, that gut feeling, if you will, is based on training and experience. So they, they, they move through that very quickly based on what they see because they've seen it before or they ever recall it. That's the experienced now, guys. What about the ones that aren't experienced? How do you get them to there? Okay, we get we get the inexperienced guys through that by by what we call tactical decision gaming or scenario based gaming, where we take those young experienced men and women and put them in a in a situation where we create a disaster of some type, uh, and then we team them with senior senior people who have been through that and let them work through and make decisions based on what's going on around them, and that helps give them that experience that they need so that they. Next time they see something similar to that, the the mind will recall that. Okay, now let's go to the business people part of the question. Right. What what would happen if you know you you're the general manager of a high rise building and that building mm-hmm. is befallen by you know severe hurricane damage? You know, there's no power and you know the tenants are in an uproar and uh, you know how do they deal with that? Well, hopefully uh, they've done some some business continuity planning before that happens and that that is actually uh, continuity planning is a is a guide that tells them what to do when and if things happen uh, and it also they're, they're able to kind of go through if this happens to me or if this happens to my business or if we lose our computers or if we lose electricity here's what we're going to do they don't do very well when it happens and they don't have a plan in place okay. we see that all the time so essentially that's this uh, what if modeling and they would model all these different things and have a written response and isn't it isn't it uh, a matter of I heard this, and you can confirm it if you know the answer. I heard that if it's a public corporation that accepts money from uh, you know people like you and I and stockholders and so on and so forth, that it's actually federally mandated that those companies now have to have a written contingency business plan. Um, I, I don't know that it's been totally mandated. I know that it has been strongly suggested. Uh, that they have a plan in place. I know I, I not long ago was uh, speaking out in California to a group of uh, investment bankers and commercial loan officers, and even those people now are requiring when you submit a business plan to them, uh, whether you're a publicly traded uh, company or not, that you actually have a, some type of a contingency plan in there that shows how you will continue operating your business if a disaster occurs. You know, for those of our listeners that come from the disaster restoration field, when the World Trade Center was bombed in 1993, uh, it was Mm -hmm. managed by the Port Authority. They actually had a contingency business plan. And in that contingency business plan, they had 
a name written into the plan of who the disaster restoration emergency responder was going to be. So, Absolutely. So when the fecal matter hit the fan, uh, they had this company written into the plan. They responded, and this was one of the largest and most profitable disaster restoration projects that was ever done because the company had the foresight to have themselves written into the plan. And it's a fabulous marketing tool. Uh, we've talked to comp- uh, we've had uh, previous guests like Michael O'Reilly, who runs Tradewinds, a large disaster restoration company. And uh-huh. we've had people on from Belfour. And these companies actively go in and get written into these plans and help companies put these contingency plans together. And it, it's, it's right on, on target of, of what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think your industry, uh, one of the things that they need to do is actually uh, better educate and better market themselves to, to these, these companies and these big uh, land uh, uh, owners of, of properties and facilities. Uh, I, you know, one part of my business is doing business continuity planning for companies. And, and certainly we always recommend that that name and phone number be, be right there. Um, uh, for for people in your industry, that that's one of the first groups that they need to call and, and get in there. Uh, but most companies say, well, you know, I, I what, you know, I'm not aware of that, or I didn't know about that. Yeah, I know that there are people out there that, for instance, come in and vacuum up water after we've had a fire damage, or or get rid of smoke and all of that, or maybe deal with mildew or something like that. But they, it's always an afterthought with them, and 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 I think your your group really needs to 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 market that and go out there and call on these people and not just when you're selling your service, but actually help them, uh, you know, put some plans together and, and make, and, and so they totally understand what exactly you do as professionals. It sounds like it would be just as important for our indoor air quality consultants and others to do the same thing because, you know, you're going to need disaster restoration people, but you're also going to have to find somebody to lean on to answer questions about, you know, when the environment is contaminated versus when it's back to where we're ready to reoccupy. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's, there's been cases that I've seen, uh, most recently certainly with New Orleans and Katrina, where there were companies that, that thought they had everything under control and they moved in, but they did. They really did not look at the air quality situation, and and uh, there was instance where they wound up occupying the building, and then they had to come back out of the building. Uh, and, and some of that was just simply off-gassing from new carpet and paint and things that were put in there, and uh, sort of the same problem that some of the FEMA trailers had with off-gassing and air quality. You know, you were talking about this tactical decision-making and uh, the fact that you have these games that, and realistic scenarios. Can you give us some examples of how realistic the scenarios are? Well, they're they're pretty they're they're getting much much better. With we we are actually using uh, three dimensional gaming, if you will, almost like a virtual reality. But when we're training uh, 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 individuals, uh, we actually we're firefighters and things. We're actually able now to to introduce smoke into the environment and, and introduce. Uh, uh, turn the heat up in rooms and do different things to try to create as close as we can possibly get to an actual environment uh, and and then have them make decisions on what they're going to do next in that. So we're really stressing them psychologically and physiologically uh, through these series of games. How do these responders combat this natural fight or flight uh, response? And 
Is that the same thing that you would call survival stress situation? Uh, yes, it, it, it is the same thing that I would call that. Uh, and, you know, that's caused by adrenaline, and, and, and it's fear. Uh, and, and fear is a good thing. Fear, is, fear means nothing has happened. Uh, and it, it's telling your body that, but you need to do something. You need to respond to it. So uh, it is very similar to uh, to what we teach uh, uh, in in dealing with uh, with fear and stress, and is in what you were talking about with uh, uh, with SSA. And and it's just again getting the student to understand or SSR. I'm sorry. It's getting the student to understand. Um, you know what's going on, what's happening to them, and then they, we teach them there are ways to uh, to control that, and that's through visual visualization. I can't even speak today. Uh, <laughs> simulation training again, back to back to because that helps build experience and confidence that you can that you can deal with the situation, and then something we call autogenic breathing, which is which is really being able to take breaths and 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 just slow down and and uh, uh, breathe if nothing else. You know, one of the things that I learned on your website, and I believe that you mentioned earlier in the interview, is one of the things that you have studied and has been of great personal interest to you is why some people have survived the crisis and Mm -hmm. others have not. And Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what the answer is to that question. Well, some of it has to do with training, but I was was very interested. I have for years... Uh, tried to interview and talk to people that have survived different situations, and actually was fortunate enough to interview some people that survived the uh, the World Trade Center disasters. Mm-hmm. And and it it kind of boiled down to uh, these people are not they don't follow directions real good, and they're 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 kind of uh, self absorbed and taking care of themselves. And they also tend to have a sense of humor. Uh, just very quickly, one of the ladies I, I interviewed that was in the World Trade Center. Uh, when the first plane hit, uh, she jumped up and started out of her office to see what was going on, and her manager told everybody to go back to their office and sit down. They didn't know what was happening. A lot of them did that. She didn't. She left, went downstairs, and even after she got into the lobby of the Trade Center, uh, people were saying, no, 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 stay. There's stuff falling out there. We don't know what's going on. And she basically said, to heck with you, and left. And shortly after that, you know, the second plane hit, and, and it was just devastating. So it, it's it's not necessarily listening to the authority, but listening to yourself and doing that. And and also kind of having a, 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 the ability to to uh, uh, to just go when, when that intuition tells you something's not right and I've got to go. And I found that was one of the main reasons why people tended to survive. And also, as, as it may, as, Crazy as it may sound, having a having a sense of humor about it, uh, being able to kind of laugh during that 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 uh, uh, traumatic event that may be going on around you, uh, uh, and doing things. I've, I interviewed a young lady whose family was killed in a plane crash, and she walked out and had to climb down this rather steep bank, and she had on a dress, and she said about halfway down she just broke out laughing. And I asked her why she did that, and she said because I can still hear my mother reminding me to. Uh, that I shouldn't climb up ladders or climb down things with a dress on, even though she knew there was no one else around like that. But so it, it was a sense of humor. Uh, so there, but there's a number of things, and there's been quite a bit of research done on on why people survive and how they survive. 
Well, Dale, let's. Uh, what we'd like to do here is we, we'll take a short break and do our What's News segment with Glenn Fellman, and then we'll bring you right back. This has been fascinating. I look forward to the second half. Yep. All right, Joe. All right. Thank you. news is so factually boring. I get assignments that any could do. I am the scapegoat for all of the group. I'm mostly a figure they laugh at, but then I'll be a leader of men. Hello, Glenn. Glenn. Hello. Hello, Glenn. All right, we've got you. What's, uh, what's news, Mr. Feldman? How are you? I'm doing very well, guys, and uh, great show today. Great show. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, it's it's a nice to get a, a little bit of a different kind of topic going on. I think very informative for your listeners. What's new is that uh, we've got a year in review issue of Indoor Environment Connections hitting the streets in about a week. Uh, our December newspaper covers uh, what's been the best and worst of 2007, and we went straight to our editorial advisory board members. It's a who's who of the IAQ industry, and we asked them simply. What was the best thing that happened this year, and what was the worst thing that happened this year for the indoor air quality industry? So you get to hear from the likes of uh, Bob Baker and George Benda and Barney Burroughs and uh, Carl Grimes, just to name a few, um, many, many others as well from our board uh, who, who gave uh, very candid opinions and it makes for great reading. We also have some specialty sections on year in review. Bill Turner covered indoor quality in schools for us, gave us a look at programs that were successful and unsuccessful throughout the year. Shelley Levick Masters covers legal decisions and verdicts for the year that affect the IAQ industry. That's an article I hope everyone really pays attention to. And then uh, Dan Stey wrote about stress and indoor air quality and some research this year that's come out that um, links those things together. We also, of course, have a lot of news in this issue. And uh, one of the most interesting stories, I think, is about a group out of Pennsylvania, a training academy, that um, pulled the trigger a little bit early on some advertising for courses in Florida, which they said would comply with the recently passed Senate Bill 2234. Unfortunately, the Department of Business and Professional Regulation down there hasn't even begun to set the rules for that law, so they kind of got caught a little bit and had to do some reverse on that. So it's uh, another kind of intriguing story. And then last, uh, we've got our buyer's guide this, this issue, and it's a phenomenal marketplace for products and services, everything from cameras to training to tools, you name it, it's in there. And uh, it's a nice condensed listing, takes off about four or five pages, something you should keep on your shelf all year. If you need a piece of equipment, you've got a great directory right in front of you. That's it for me. All right. I got a quick note here, though. We want to ask you if you got any... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. No, I was wrong. That was for I, Dale. What I wanted to follow up on, though, is the um, the legal article, Glenn. That sounds like it, it's going to be very interesting, and we've had quite a few attorneys on this year, and um, some of the decisions have been kind of interesting. I'm, I'm going to be real curious to see how that comes out. It seems like there's been less legal activity, at least with respect to mold and mold contamination, than people had expected. I think it's true that there's been less activity, but there's also been some very important decisions that could set precedent in other cases that will come down the road. Uh, In in some ways, it's a positive thing for people who do, uh, say, mold assessment or mold 
uh, remediation, and some of those verdicts are, are work to the negative, um, and some of them work against consumers as well. But it's uh, it's an interesting um, article, and, and Shelley does a great job of kind of giving a year-end wrap-up of what was important in 2007. Now, will that be just on mold, or will she do indoor environmental quality as well? She covers a bit of this and that, but she's focused, a lot of it is focused on microbial issues, but she does get into some other areas. All right, great. CJ, what do you got going on over there? I, I, I can see the look in your eye. He's got some kind of a sign clip or something going. Yeah, yeah. And in, in, in regards to this whole legal thing, uh, Bart Simpson has, has an opinion on this whole thing. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, Glenn, That's the truth. thanks for joining us. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to bring you back for the roundup. Sounds great. I'll be on standby. All right. Thank you. Let's bring uh, Dieter back in for a moment if he's available. Hello, Dieter. Yes, I am available. You are available. I'm just curious, any comments or or questions from the first half? You had to ask me. (laughs) (laughs) You learn how to make decisions in a hurry when you see a MiG-21 approaching you. (laughs) Absolutely. And I went... uh, 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 the comments I want. Well, let's put it this way: Isn't it, isn't it, Im- interesting that you have to teach people what we were talking about in the last half hour after they come out of school? <laughs> it's a good business, <laughs> and I don't want to put him down. Shouldn't we know that? We don't do it. We are complacent. We are in the greatest country in the world, in the richest country in the world, in the safest country in the world. We don't, yeah, we are complacent. We don't have to worry about a damn thing. Now, I grew up during the Second World War in Germany. And by the way, you also learn how to make quick decisions when a couple of bombs are falling. (laughs) Plutonium, wait a minute. Are you you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? But you learn, you learn how to make those decisions. We didn't think that we need to teach our kids on how to do that. You know, we, we, there was once, remember, uh, what is that, a duck and cover with the atomic uh, bomb right, thing that right. little, yeah. little kids learned in high school or in grade school, for that matter. Right. Uh, I, I see that on the History Channel. I wasn't in this country. I was on the other side of the ocean. But... Um, I I uh, I uh, uh, certainly am all in favor of bringing these situations up and teaching people. I said, hey guys, you 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 got to have a couple of plants if something is happening that you can't stand over there and just watch it. And I said, oh my God, what the heck am I going to do now? Right. They all so, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. Um, Dieter brings up a great point. You know, we we have a great uh, you know educate people, etc. Um, do other countries do a better job of actually? Preparing I, I don't know. That, yeah, I don't know that they do. I mean, uh, there there are certain countries and and certain things that I think do a better job with it just because of their day to day existence. I mean, uh, and the life that they live in. Like uh, Dieter was saying. Uh, you know, in Germany uh, during bombing, or, or even uh, uh, the people in Israel uh, do a do yeah. a pretty good job. But yeah. you know, there there are a lot of things that people think. You know, they think that 
that thinking is natural and that you don't have to think about it to do it well. Well, that's you do. You, that's that's not true. And thinking skills and intelligence are, are synonymous. They're not. And smart people should just know how to think well, and educated people should just know how to think well. They do not. Um, so those are those are some of the misconceptions we have to get over. All right. Well, Dan. Oh, I, I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it is just unbelievable. There are a lot of things that we don't teach our kids mm-hmm. because we think they really don't need that. That's exactly right. Yeah. And we don't tend to train or do things, even at our government level, until, sadly to say, a disaster happens. And then and then we sort of react and start uh, not necessarily making good decisions at that point in time. We tend well, to do things that we just think uh, people want to hear that, and, and sort of create an illusion of security and safety. Well, I think we have a wonderful example with 9-11. Absolutely. We knew there was something going on. Said, we, the boys from the FBI, talk to the CIA. Are you crazy? No, that won't happen. <laughs> Those are the bad boys over there. We're not going to communicate with them. And uh, it's, 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 I mean, <laughs> that is interesting if you come to think of it. Yeah, and, and you know the example that you gave earlier back in, and I do remember back in the '60s when we, when we were taught to, you know, duck under our desk if yep. we heard this and if we heard that, and and that was that's a that is a great example of our government uh, having us do something uh, that really, in fact, would have done very little if an actual nuclear blast had occurred. Absolutely. To protect you. Well, Dieter, if you don't mind, we'll we'll bring you back for the roundup. I'm be here. I'm changed to my telephone. All right. <laughs> On the last line. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dieter. Okay, Joe. Okay, Dale, we're back with you now. And All right. uh, we wanted to, uh, I think we wanted to move over to the international, or did you have something else? Chris? Well, no, I actually, I think what I was going to try to get Dale to do is um, I'm going to ask you two questions, and you can answer either one of them. Because uh, right. I think that they're the same. I think that they're the same question, but I think I'm going to just ask it differently. You know, like one is learning from history and trying to get you to do some Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, can you look back in your life's rearview mirror and give some examples of how important events might have been managed better? Uh, or you can answer the alternative question, which is giving us some sort of personal experience. Uh, you know, when something bad, or, bad has happened or something interesting in our life, in our training classes, we stop for a minute and have people tell a war story or whatever. And, you know, it's not something that had to have been military, but I'm just either looking for a war story that kind of fits or some sort of Monday morning quarterbacking that's just going to give our listeners a good example of what could have been done better or else what was done right. Perhaps. Uh, well, yeah, I can I can address that, and 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 both of them, uh, both of your questions can kind of be addressed in this. I mean, uh, I'm not one that tends to go back and and uh, you know I, I do review lessons learned and try to look at what happened and what we did right and what we did wrong uh, uh, during disasters, both nationally and internationally, uh, and and how we can improve that. That that that's one of the ways that I improve the way I train people. But I, I think in the past, in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of our mistakes have been uh, that, number one, when something major happens, when a 9-11 happens or a Katrina happens, uh, I mean, thank God those are rare events. They don't happen that frequently, and we can discuss why they don't happen that frequently uh, if you want to, but they don't happen that frequently. And when they do happen, we tend to 
respond with everything that we've got and and certainly uh, uh, lessons that we need to learn from that even uh, through both of those those uh, terrible disasters was the fact that uh, our communication skills and our training skills were not up to the level that they really needed to be for major disasters. We tend in this country to spend a lot of time and a lot of effort on technology, developing new technology to do this, developing new technology to do that, utilizing technology to prevent this from happening, utilizing technology to to help deal with the disaster once it's taken place. And, the, and, and we've done that, but, and again, this is sort of where my bias comes in, but we haven't necessarily taught people to really think through that process once that happens. And I think one of the greatest lessons that we need to learn from, from major disasters worldwide is, is that we haven't, uh, when they do happen, uh, we, we act like we're surprised that they happen, and rather than saying, okay, they've happened, now let's deal with it and let's deal with it intelligently, and we don't always do that. We just tend to rush in and do what we, we, we believe needs to be done at that moment. Our first responders do a great job uh, in going in and, and, and putting their uh, lives at risk during a disaster to respond to something, but they're not always communicating with one another in an appropriate manner. They're not always, there's not always a good command control uh, system in place. The language that, that firefighters and police officers and other first responders are speaking may not, uh, may not concur. So we've got it. We've, and we need to start training more of our people together. Uh, we need to train firefighters and police officers in the same room with with local elected officials and with uh, uh, emergency medical uh, personnel. So where they they know how each other thinks and how each other is going to react during a situation. And, and I think that's one of the biggest history lessons we need to learn is train together. Dale, what what we'd like to do here, I think, is to to go down and uh, go through a list of some basic. Uh, situations like disaster preparedness, corporate crisis preparedness, uh, mm-hmm. safety, etc., and ask you to give some specific tips for our listeners on how to handle certain situations. And I'll let Cliff start. You know, I went on your website, and it was just fabulous, and I think all of our listeners should go there. And what I did is I went through each of the different – or Joe and I went through each of the different seminars that you did, and we highlighted some things that really caught our interest. Like under this family disaster preparedness, there were two that, that kind of caught me. Uh, one was how to purify water, uh, you know, like drinking water, and the other was how – to keep a cell phone powered when there's no electricity. I don't know either of those things. Uh, can you give us answers to those questions? Well, well, sure. I mean, uh, the uh, there's a number of ways to, to purify drinking water. I mean, one and, and probably the simplest for everybody uh, is to boil it. And uh, I've, I've actually had people say, oh, well, I don't have electricity. Well, uh, I, if you don't have electricity, you have a gas stove. Or if you have, have prepared yourself and, and – uh, uh, you would have some little stove or some way to uh, to boil your water and uh, uh, and make that uh, make it drinkable and and that's that's again the easiest and simplest ways and some of the other ways is you can actually go to outdoor stores and buy uh, water purification systems uh, uh, that you can that you can utilize to to uh, to do that. You can even use. Um, uh, uh, depending on the quantity of water that you're going to clear, you can even use uh, uh, chlorine or old household bleach by putting uh, uh, about eight uh, 
uh, teaspoons in a gallon of water and mixing it up, you'll you'll taste a little chlorine, but the chlorine will actually kill most of the pathogens, the bacteria and the, and the uh, viruses that are in the water. So those are some ways. And, and also, you've got drinking water in your house. Uh, if you have a hot water tank and 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 you lose uh, lose your power and lose everything else, if you'll go shut off the water, the main water line coming into your house, uh, some of these hot water tanks will have 55 to 80 gallons of, of potable drinkable water within that. Yeah, so there, there's water there. You just have to have to know where it is and and uh, again do a little do a little preparedness. Uh, uh, one of the best things you could do is is uh, is buy my book called what? On Your Own: A Family's Guide to Disaster Preparedness, uh, right. which is available <laughs> at Amazon and other stores around the country. But uh, it it tells you all that stuff and that, how to do it. Good. What's the cell phone one? How do you keep the cell phone powered? Well, again, if, if there, there are no, there are a number of ways. One is one is using uh, if if you don't have, for instance, your your uh, uh, your power is off. You can always, uh, hopefully, have an adapter that you can plug into your car and do it uh, and charge it uh, that way. There are other little devices that you can go out and back uh, and and purchase that actually uh, little hand crank uh, tools and other things like that that you can actually plug into your cell phone and charge them up. Perfect. Let's go to corporate crisis. All right. On during a corporate price crisis, how do we protect uh, key assets like critical files and documents? Well, the best way to do that certainly is to is to have them backed up and and stored electronically off site. Uh, that's that's a uh, a very rapidly growing business in this country, and and more and more and more people are doing that. Larger corporations will sometimes tend to have their own. Uh, own backup and storage areas, but I, I always recommend a, a third party that uh, where you, where these uh, important documents are, are stored. What about for our women's listeners? How about your, your choice of a women's safety or self defense tip? Uh, awareness again. I, I think uh, a, a, just a couple of quick things. One is always being aware of what's going on around you. If you're walking down a street or when you come out of the mall or the shopping uh, center. Uh, uh, or a grocery store with an armful of bags and your purse flying over. Uh, uh, instead of looking down or looking, look out where your car is. See if there's anything that you don't like out there. And if there is, don't go to your car. Uh, turn around and go back inside. Or ask someone, a manager or someone in there that you know, to walk you to your car if you see something that, that you don't like. If you're walking down the street and you see something out in front of you uh, that, that you don't like, again, you've got to be looking. Uh, a group of people and you're concerned about it, cross over to the other side of the street or, or go into uh, go into a store. Um, it, it's, it really is all about making good decisions based on what you see going on around you and listening to your gut and that, that intuitive instinct. If, if it's telling you something's not, not right, it may not be. What so do about, something about it. What about uh, some, we've got a lot of people who travel who are listeners. How about some some tips on travel safety? Well, travel safety uh, again. I, I I don't want to beat the horse to death, but again, it's about being aware and looking at what's going on around you. It's about if you're going to a country or you're going somewhere out of the United States. Uh, doing a little homework. There are many many websites that'll tell you about the country. Uh, will tell you about uh, uh, how safe it is to take the cabs in that country, how safe it is uh, around the hotel that you're going into. Always go in the front door of the hotel. Uh, if you're a female traveler, 
uh, have someone, uh, a bellman or something like that, walk you to your room. Let them go in the room first. Uh, look at that. Of course, uh, when you leave your room, if you've got a radio or television, uh, I always recommend leaving that on because then uh, the, the bad guys don't know whether you're there or you're not there. If you're a jogger or a runner, always ask at the front desk of your hotel, uh, is it safe to run or walk in this area? Uh, always uh, uh, know who the, uh, the your driver is or your taxi cab uh, uh, most instances, uh, having uh, the better hotels uh, to to get you a, a driver for you. Uh, understand that as soon as you get to the airport, uh, moving through airports in a lot of countries is is where the the bad guys are. That's where they identify possible targets. So moving through the airport and again being aware of what's going on around you. Uh, try not to look like an American. Try to dress down. Leave the jewelry at home. Leave the Rolex at home. Uh, don't put a big wad of money in your in your front pocket. Uh, so there there are there are a number of, of things like that that uh, that you you just need to be aware of. I had a, a quick one. Safety products you should travel with that, that caught my attention. Well, that that uh, again depends on when you're traveling. Here here locally, uh, uh, I think a cell phone is something uh, that most people should never leave home without because okay. again you can you can use it to. Uh, uh, to quickly call for help in emergency, but a cell phone can also give you sort of a false sense of security as well. We, uh, particularly young people, they think if they've got that phone in their hand, they're they're bulletproof, and and that's just not the case. Um, always, uh, um, you know, I always tell people whenever they're traveling, particularly overseas or something, that that uh, you know they always carry backups of of your identification, make photocopy of your passport, uh, uh, the front two pages of your passport, make a photocopy of your driver's license, make some photocopies of, of, of other uh, documents that you might have and, and keep those separate from, from your regular passports and, and other things like that. Great ideas. If you could give us just one for crisis decision-making for first responders, uh, maybe the one you think is most important. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's a, that's a toughie because again situations uh, uh, change rapidly and, it, and it's it's really based on the particular situation that they find themselves in. But again, I think uh, uh, that situ- situational awareness, being aware of, of where you are in relationship to to that crisis and what's going on around you, whether you're a firefighter or anything or fire, whether you're a police officer stopping someone on the street. Uh, uh, and and you if you if you've had the proper training, let your training uh, help you through that. Dale, we, before we go to the roundup, I just wanted to um, real quickly, if you could, I, I was going to ask you about one overseas disaster that you responded to and one local one. Let's let's let you uh, take your pick. If you could give us some lessons learned from either an overseas disaster or a, um, you know, one here in the United States that you could help with some tips for our listeners? Well, sure. I, th- I think probably just real quick, the worst disaster that I probably worked just as it relates to loss of life and everything was was flooding in, in, uh, in a little town called Jemani in the Dominican Republic that's on the Haitian-Dominican uh, Republic uh, border a few years ago. Literally a, a, a wall of water about 20 feet high came down through the middle of this uh, this town and and literally uh, killed approximately 2,500 people, and I was there the day after it happened, and it was just a, a 
just to see what nature can do. And I mean, the, as we were finding the victims, you know, the, the force of the water was so great that it just literally ripped all their clothes off. And, and they're, they're, most of the people were asleep. It happened about two o'clock in the morning. Uh, that that's probably one of the worst, just immediate disasters I had. Uh, it could, could, and Katrina certainly was a was a major disaster, and and a lot of first responders didn't deal with Katrina very well because they'd never seen anything like Katrina. I had senior uh, fire chiefs and police chiefs uh, that came up to me down there, and they were just overwhelmed by the mass of the of the destruction. And what you have to do is focus again on what you're able to do. Uh, there was one fire chief that came down there and. They were just standing there looking at all the water and, and everything else and didn't know what to do. And I said, well, Chief, what have you got with you? He said, well, I've got my search and rescue guys with me. I said, then that's what you do. You you start, you find a block of houses that, that no one has been down or haven't been identified and marked, and you start doing that. If you look at the big picture of, of the devastation of a major crisis like that, uh, nothing ever gets done. So pick what you can do and go do it. And do it. And, and go do it. Okay. That's great. Great advice for our our, uh, our listeners. I guess there was one other one. Oh, yeah, I'm curious, Dale. Maybe you can give me an opinion on this. This drives me crazy. Here in the United States, we've rarely, if ever, seen any of these smaller terrorism events like a, um, you know, a car bomb or somebody blowing themselves up in a crowd. I'm just curious. Do you have an opinion on why we haven't seen more of that here as opposed to what we see overseas? Well, I think, I mean, we've done a real good job uh, in this country, and, and I don't think our, our intelligence forces are given enough uh, credit for this, but we've we've deterred a lot of those type of efforts. I mean, we're all aware of about arrests that were made uh, of, of people that, uh, terrorists uh, that wanted to blow up some gas storage tanks at, at airports. Uh, there, there's been uh, arrests made uh uh, so I, I think we've done a much better job with our intelligence gathering and with our, our uh, deterring that. Also, you have to understand the mindset of al-Qaeda. And I, I do think al-Qaeda has been disrupted uh, a great deal. And, and they really look at, because they do have limited resources, but they really looked at, look at the big bang sort of thing. I mean, they want the 9-11 type event. They want flying into the Pentagon type of event. And uh, and those are really the types of attacks that they're they're looking at. And um, and again, our our security strategies and intelligence gathering um, has greatly increased, and we have done that. Uh, I do think we'll have another attack. I just I don't know where or when or what type of an attack it will be. But I don't think it it will be a small attack. Those types of attacks seem to make a lot of sense to a lot of people, but they, yeah, understanding Al-Qaeda and their culture, they really want to go again for the Big Bang. Well, thank you. Let's uh, let's go to the roundup, CJ. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move them on, hit them up, raw hide. Cut them out, ride them in, ride them in, let them out, cut them out, ride them in, raw Right. Let's go around the table. Uh, we'll we'll go in the order that we uh, started with as far as the guests go. Glenn, let's uh, bring you back in for a moment. Anything you'd like to ask or add? Oh, I'd like to to uh, to I guess to ask and add. 
uh, we talked about a lot of different types of disasters and disaster scenarios, and one that uh, this show has been talking about uh, for the last month has been the wildfires out in California. Yeah. And we had uh, threats last weekend of uh, reversing Santa Ana winds and, and a, another round of fires, and I think we, we dodged that to some extent. But I uh, would love to hear just a little bit of uh, you know, recommendations and things for folks who live in those kinds of areas where wildfires come through. Uh, is that a question to me? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's 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 really uh, uh, things that you do around your house. It's it's clearing a a, a uh, rather large uh, parameter around your house, removing all uh, kinds of dead limbs and and uh, and trees that are around your house, creating a fire break, if you will, uh, keeping uh, leaves and and other things uh, out of your gutters and from underneath uh, your house. Uh, uh, build if you if you're building the house and you know you're building in a wildfire area, don't build it out of wood. Uh, you know you know build a build a structure that is that is brick or concrete as much as possible. And uh, those are sort of the main things. Creating that fire break uh, now now with the winds and the speed that these fires were were uh, were moving, they certainly were moving over fire breaks pretty quick. Uh, but uh, it's just keeping any kind of flammable debris uh, of, of woods and leaves and grass and so forth away from the house as much as possible yeah. and not having wood shingles. It seems like going back to uh, what you had discussed earlier, too, that the people who had worked in groups to do that around their neighborhoods seem to fare better. Absolutely, they do. Yeah, it's a, it's a neighborhood involvement, if you will, uh, and where, where groups of people would go to one house and help clean up and and clear away, and then they go on down the, to the next one. Great. Dieter, are you on the line? I certainly am. I'll bet you've got a comment or a question here, Dieter. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, I wrote down three things uh, down in front of me. Anybody, <laughs> I was in the middle of it, anybody who has a passport, please <laughs> do what you heard before. Make yourself three or four or five copies. I lost my passport between Tokyo and Chicago a week ago. <laughs> and, and this is this is no bullshit here. <laughs> this is true. And the crazy German had made a copy. I went faster through uh, immigration than anybody else. Wow. I told him, I said, sir, I lost my uh, passport. Here's my copy. He put in my number, said, bum, 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 said, thank you very much, sir. Your passport is, in, is useless at the, as of this moment. He just put in the number and threw it out. Unfortunately, they, they found the damn thing. And I, had applied, I had applied for a new one for $150. So please... Please, please do yourself a favor and make yourself many copies and keep them wherever. Not inside your passport. The next thing is, and that is very interesting, and I have discussed that for a long time, and Joe, we have a common friend. His first name is Purvis. Purvis worked for the Software Institute, uh, Carnegie Mellon University here in Pittsburgh. He knows everything about computers. And that point was made. We got to train the firemen and police people. They cannot even, in most instances, they cannot even communicate. Because somebody got a consultant and said, I'm going to put your system in for $500, and the other one put it in for $400.
they cannot even communicate if they wanted to. That's very true. Which is, in, I, I had no idea that this is happening in the United States. I don't think the fire department of, I don't know that, uh, the fire department of Carnegie, this is my township over here, can communicate with the police department. I don't think they can. They could run across the street because they are literally across the street. <laughs> the other thing is, uh, I was in Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, and I asked very carefully what to do and what not to do. Mm. By the way, there are no taxis in Phnom Penh because why? A, a good taxi would be hijacked by armed robbers and oh. the car would be stolen. So therefore, there are no taxis over there. And my guide told me, I said, look, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. And, you know, if, when in Rome, do like the Romans do. I said, you can go over there. You can go over there. You can go over there. We pick you up at 8 o'clock in the morning. Keep your eyes open. Watch out. Don't go over there. It's not worth it. We do that tomorrow morning when during daylight and all of that. So I think this is wonderful, wonderful advice. And I think we all, we, we are too complacent. We, we, we are too lazy, complacent, and said, ah, it couldn't possibly happen to me. So I, I, I think that's where we got to start. And I think this is a nice talk to make people aware of the problems that are literally around the corner that you're not even aware of. Yeah. And, you know, due to most people that travel overseas that don't do it a lot tend to think that the rest of the world is just like the United States. They, they, right, right. They really yeah. do, yeah. And it's far from it, I assume. I'm and not... it's far from it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's For, far from yeah, it. In, in most instances, uh, instances, fortunately, you know, I travel, I went to Vietnam, Cambodia, and uh, and uh, Thailand because it, I, I assumed, and it certainly was different than the United States. That's why I went there. Yep. But when in Rome, do like the Romans do. You know, Absolutely. I, I did what I was supposed to do. I had guides who, who took care of me, who knew the town a hell of a lot better than I do. <laughs> and they gave me the advice, and that's what I did. Yeah, that, and that's exactly what you do. You know, I've been to 128... You, you mentioned it before. Yeah, I've been to 128 countries, dude, and the only place I was ever robbed was in Germany. He's <laughs> <laughs> Sam Krauss. I know. Dieter, I think... It was probably not a German. It was an immigrant from... I believe the appropriate word for for traveling to Germany is Achtung. Achtung. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us, Dieter. We appreciate it. I wanted to give Cliff a chance. I know he had one more thing he wanted to ask you about, Dale. Actually, I had I had uh, a comment, and then I actually had had a question. You know, one, an interesting thing. My son and I do some have a pretty extreme hobby and we like to to cave dive and one of the interesting <laughs> things that Dale talked People about get killed in those <laughs> is is learning how to manage uh panic and right. you know essentially you learn how to do it and you know then what happened is both Zach and I have been in situations where under normal had we not had the training we probably would have panicked and precisely died. and the fact that you had the training and rehearsed it, it's just, I mean, you don't even get, you know, you don't even get stressed. And to quote our dive guide, Cliff, again, it's all part of awareness. <laughs> <laughs> well, it really is. But but uh, I can't overemphasize training uh, as a way to, to deal with things and, and specific kinds of training. You know, you, uh, it's an old uh, 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 defense.
defense, uh, Department of Defense thing, but you know, you you train like you're going to work, and then and then you perform your work like you've trained. Right. And I, I guess what my question is is, what's your? Uh, I guess I'd throw this out to both you and Dieter. What's your opinion really on this pandemic with with avian flu? Do you think it's uh, really likely to happen in the United States, or you think it's overblown? Well, I think. Uh, uh I don't think pandemics are overblown. I certainly think they could happen. I think one of the things, guys, that I don't try to focus on too much is the type of disaster or the type of event. It really doesn't matter to me if, if the pandemic is caused by H5N1, which is the bird flu, or if it's caused by SARS, or if it's caused by smallpox or, or some some uh, biological release by mankind. Uh, it's, it's how we're going to deal with it and how we're going to respond to it uh, when it does happen. Yes, I do think uh, something like that can happen. Uh, again, fortunately, those types pandemics are are rare events, and and we live in the best country in the world to deal with it. If in fact uh, something happens, Dieter, did did you want to add anything? Oh yeah, I, I'd rather get SARS than smallpox. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's... I know I know what to do with SARS. You know, you take two aspirins, a couple of beers, you lie down. That's it. Right. Right. <laughs> with smallpox, you are in deep trouble, and, and I, 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 I'm pretty sure that our you and our listeners know. I mean, my God, one case of smallpox in the world is an epidemic. That's right. I mean, it, we we don't. We don't even know what the hell to do about it anymore. It's yes. unbelievable. Yeah, we wiped it out 20 years ago, whatever. Uh, can it happen? I sometimes, yeah, I yes, yes, I am a little bit scared of it. And um, I, I don't know whether our bodies can defend it themselves against some invaders of some, you know, most likely uh, not bacteria but viruses and i don't know how yeah i i i I think about it let's put it that way okay well thank you dieter i'd just like to um you know it's my turn and i all i want to ask dale is you know is there anything that uh, we missed that you'd like to add Oh, about 25 years' worth of stuff. <laughs> well, we're, we'll bring you back. We're certainly hoping we can bring you back because um, I still have about a page worth of questions okay. here we didn't get to, and I, I know you've got some great stories we'd love to hear. But uh, what we'd like to do is really thank you for joining us. We'll get your uh, website out one more time. It's dalestewart.com. And is your book available on the website? Uh, yes, you can get it on the website. It's also, uh, as I said, most uh, Amazon.com, most stores. And uh, I actually have a new book that will be out in March uh, that really gets more into my philosophy on uh, critical thinking, situational awareness, and and, uh, and disaster. And I, I think that that's due to, to be out in uh, in March. Well, we really. What was the name of the first book again? It's On Your Own. A Family's Guide to Disaster Preparedness. All right. Well, I really want to uh, thank Dale Stewart for joining us here today on IAQ Radio. I also want to make sure that I uh, take this opportunity to thank my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, the cyber jockey, the wingman here, and, of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. I also want to thank Glenn Fellman for joining us with the IE Connections What's News segment. Uh, Most important, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us again next week, Friday at noon, for the next edition of 
IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Thank you.